Well, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 are our verses for this morning. That is our text. Those two verses we will confine our study to this morning. We spent the last couple of weeks, maybe you realize this as we were studying, but we spent the last couple of weeks in eternity past. It was there in eternity past that God chose us. He predestined us to be accepted in the Beloved. Eternity past. And this morning we move out of eternity past and we move, we move into time where the plans of the Father, the redemptive plans of the Father, are placed into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ who will lay down his life to construct the church. That living, breathing organism redeemed by him, the church. In verses 4 through 6, Paul praises God for his work in election and adoption. And here in verses 7 and 8, Paul praises God for redemption and the forgiveness of sin. And so with that, by just a little bit, or by way of a little bit of backdrop there, let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. Why don't you stand with us if you have the ability? Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens the following words in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. You may be seated. If you're taking notes this morning, the first point on your outline is this, the cost of our redemption is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The cost of our redemption is the infinite precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll talk about the cost first this morning and then points two, three, and four on your outline this morning. I'll give you three results of our redemption. We'll talk first about the cost and then about the results. But the cost of our redemption is the precious blood of Christ. Turn your attention to verse 7a. That's everything that appears before the first comma in your Bible. The phrase, in him we have redemption through his blood. Notice that Paul immediately reminds us of the origin of our redemption. Our redemption is in him. We talked the very first week that we began our study and said that that is a reoccurring theme in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. In him. We must be found in him. Paul again reminds us of that right off the bat here in verse 7. In him means not in ourselves. Though the world dies trying, and so did we before we came to know Christ savingly, if we have, though the world dies trying, we cannot be a self-redeeming people. We can't be self-redeemed. If we are to be redeemed, we are to be redeemed in him. Jesus Christ is our only hope for redemption, and brothers and sisters, he is sufficient. He's sufficient. Let's look at this word redemption for a few moments here. There are actually three Greek words that are translated redeem or redemption in your New Testament. The first word is the Greek word agorazo. Agorazo. It simply means this. It means to purchase something from the marketplace. The idea here is that you and I are walking through the marketplace, maybe it's Walmart in our local context here, and we find an item that we desire there, and we purchase it. We pay the price in exchange for that item. simply means to buy and to take out. Agarazzo, it's the word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 6.20, he says, so you were bought with a price. So then, or therefore, honor God with your bodies. You were bought with a price, so honor God with your bodies. 
means to purchase out. The second word is similar. It's ex agorazo. A similar word means to buy out of the marketplace, but there's a little bit of a nuance change here. It means to buy for one's own possession. Agorazo means you go to the marketplace and you buy something, but you could literally turn right back around, walk down the street, and resell it. It belongs to you. You bought it, and so you could turn right around and resell it. Ex agorazo, on the other hand, means to buy something, but to buy it, to pay the price for it, that it would be your own, that it becomes your possession, never again to be resold. Paul uses this particular word in Galatians 3.13 when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, this is a beautiful word for us. Because it means that we as believers never have to fear being resold into sin and slavery. We never have to fear being resold. Jesus Christ has purchased us, and he has purchased us for his very own possession. He paid the price, he's taken us off the market, and he has claimed us for his own. The last word redeemed is apolutrosis. And that's the word that Paul uses here in verse 7. This is the word that we're going to be looking at here. In verse 7 of our text, this word means to buy out of slavery, to pay a ransom price in order to set a prisoner free. To pay the price in exchange for someone else's freedom, to buy out of slavery. Redemption is a beautiful word, friends. It's a colorful word in all three of these instances, especially in the one that we're looking at here to pay the price to purchase a slave out of slavery and to set them free. How does this apply to us? Well, spiritually, we were all born into the slave market of sin. We were all born children of wrath, walking hand in hand with the father of lies. But Jesus came to release us from the shackles and chains of our sin and to purchase us back from the slave market of death, to forgive us of our sin and to set us free. This is what Jesus uh, means in John chapter 8, verse 36, a familiar text to us. If the Son has set you free, finish the sentence, you are free indeed. If the Son has set you free, if He has redeemed you, if He has paid the price to redeem you, then you are truly free. Never again having to fear being resold into sin, slavery, and death. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. There we were, standing on the slave block, so to speak, of sin. And by grace through faith, Jesus Christ comes and he pays our price. He redeems us from the bondage of sin and death. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever wondered why God ordained the fall? Have you ever wondered why God ordained the fall? We have to be real careful here. Because God is not the author of sin. Okay? Okay? God is not the author of sin, but God did ordain the fall. God did ordain that man would fall into sin. Why do you suppose he did that? I'm going to propose a very simple answer to what probably needs many, many more words of explanation. But I would propose to you this. I would propose to you that God ordained the fall so that we might know him in all the fullness of his self-revelation. In other words... If God had not ordained sin, we would only know him as creator. But because God ordained sin, we have the privilege of knowing him as redeemer. Creator, 
and Redeemer. Again, probably many more words are needed to give a sufficient explanation to why God ordained sin, but I want you to grasp that one. That we might know him in all the fullness of his self-revelation. Our God is a redeeming God. What are we redeemed or freed from? Well, we're freed from our failure to meet the law's demands. Friends, every single one of us has missed the mark exponentially. We've all failed. And even if we only failed at one point, James tells us that we're guilty of transgressing the whole law. We've all failed to meet the law's demands. And so we're freed. We're redeemed. We're freed from our failure to meet the law's demands. We're also freed from sin's guilt, from its condemnation, from sin's bondage, from sin's power, from sin's penalty. And some glorious day, friends, we will be redeemed from sin's presence once and for all. Freed already from its power. Freed already from its penalty. Looking forward to the day when we will once and forever be redeemed from its presence. Look back at your text. Paul says that our redemption is in Christ, but then he specifies that it's through the agency of his blood. The blood of Christ is the means by which our deliverance is won. This is the cost of our redemption. We're not the recipients of a cheap salvation. We're not the recipients of cheap grace. It costs nothing less than the infinite precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The price of forgiveness was nothing less than the infinite blood of, blood of the Son of God poured out on Calvary's hill. The psalmist says it this way, No man, lowercase m, can ransom another or give God the price for his life. But there is one man, capital M, who can give the price for another man's life? The Lord Jesus Christ. The only blood satisfactory to redeem us was his blood, the spotless lamb of God. Only the redeemer's bloodshedding can avail for the cleansing of the guilty. No other blood could provide a sufficient detergent for our sin. No other, no other blood could provide a sufficient detergent for our sins. Save the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the blood of sacrificial animals were continually offered on the altars of the tabernacle and the temple, but the blood of those animals was merely a shadow of the things that were to come. Their blood was never intended to, nor was it ever able to cleanse the offerers of their sin. Those offerings were merely pointing forward to the one, capital O, the one who would come and give his life as a ransom for many. The writer of Hebrews, speaking about Jesus, I love this, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 through 14, says this, He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus, or as a result, securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer could sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself to God without blemish and without defect, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more? Infinitely more. Infinitely. 2,000 years ago, God stepped into our sin-riddled world. Jesus Christ voluntarily divested himself of his heavenly throne. It's, it's the Greek word kenosis uh, there 
in Philippians. He emptied himself. He poured himself out, divesting himself of his throne. He became a servant. He took on human flesh. He was born in the likeness of men. And then he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, the cross was a horrific scene. The Son of Man, God in the flesh, was falsely accused, mocked, spit on, beaten beyond recognition. He was pierced with cold metal nails and a spear. He was hung on a Roman cross between two common criminals, raised as a spectacle for all to see, laugh, and mock. You see, most people desire a clean and tidy religion, one without the gore of a lacerated Savior whose blood ran red. But that certainly isn't biblical Christianity, is it? Biblical Christianity is bloody. The cross of Jesus Christ was repulsive, but yet it is there, friends, that sinners plunged beneath its flood lose all their guilty stains. It's a sufficient detergent for the vilest of sinners. Peter tells us how costly our redemption was when he says, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways of life, inherited from your forefathers, not not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, the suffering and the, glorious, and, the, and the glories of Jesus Christ are so paramount that even the heavenly beings long to look into such matters. The four living creatures and the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 5 sing, Worthy are you, speaking about Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for people, or for God, people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You see, the travail of man's redemption throbbed in the heart of the Godhead before time began, when the eternal Son of God covenanted to become our proxy to become our substitute, to stand in our place, to stand in our stead, to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law, to sustain the penalty of the broken law in our place. I mean, had the whole universe been tendered for the sinner's ransom, the indemnity would have been but finite. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be an offering far too small. The hymn writer penned. But the unspeakable gift of high heaven comes to our aid and allocates to our bankrupt souls his own illimitable wealth. As a result, the Lord's forgiveness is as complete as its procurement was costly. Our redemption is as complete as its procurement was costly. Charles Wesley penned it this way in 04, A Thousand Tongues to Sing. He said he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Question, is it true of you? Is it true of you? Do you know Christ covered in his blood? Covered by his blood. The story was once told of a young boy who lived in a city along the shore of a great lake. This young man was so captivated as he daily watched the sailboats crisscross the expansive lake for as far as his eye could see. And so deep was his fascination that he, with the help of his father, built a model sailboat. Day after day, he stood there along the water's edge, sailing his sailboat. One afternoon as he was sailing, a strong, mighty gust of wind caught the sail of that small vessel and it carried his small sailboat out into the lake beyond sight. 
Brokenhearted, as you can imagine, the boy returned home that, that afternoon empty-handed. So great was his love for his boat that day after day he walked the shore of the lake seeking his boat, searching for it in hopes that he might find it, but that was always to no avail. One afternoon, though, as he was walking through town, his eye caught a marvelous sight. There, in the store window, was his boat. He rushed in, stood at the counter before the store owner and said, Sir, the boat you have for sale in your window belongs to me. To which the store owner looked at him and said, If you want the boat, young man, you must pay its price. This young fellow set out to work, doing whatever it took to earn the money to to, to repurchase his boat. When he had saved what he needed, he returned to the store, paid the price, and purchased his boat back. Holding his prized possession in his hands now, he joyfully exclaimed, You are now twice mine, for I made you and I bought you. Now, let me take you back to the fall. Knowing God in all of his self-revelation, we know him both as creator and redeemer. Creator and redeemer. If you know Christ by faith, you are twice his. He made you, fearfully and wonderfully made, knit you together in your mother's womb, and then he bought you out of the marketplace of sin and death. Here are three results of our redemption. Number two on your outline, the first result of our redemption is the forgiveness of our sin. Look at verse 7b. That's everything in between the first two commas. This short phrase, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Let me turn your attention first to the word trespasses there. That word means to make a false step. means to cross over the line. We've all been to a place before where we've seen a sign that says no trespassing. And you normally see one here and one here and one here. It draws a boundary line. And what that no trespassing line tells us is, here is the line that you cannot step over. So to trespass means to step out of line or to step over the line. It means to deviate spiritually. In a spiritual sense, means to deviate from the path of truth and righteousness. But it's even more weighty than that. Because it doesn't just mean to deviate from the path of truth and righteousness, but it means to deviate consciously, deliberately, knowingly to step over the line and sin before the face of a thrice holy God. And all men know that they have stepped over the line. God, in His common grace, has given all men without exception, both believers and non-believers, a built-in warning system. He has hardwired every single person without exception with the ability to know what is right and what is wrong. Friends, we call that a conscience. It's a part of God's common grace to all men. If God removed that, our world would spin into utter chaos. There would be anarchy in the streets. But God in His goodness, God in His grace, His common grace has given all men without exception, both believers and unbelievers, that built-in hardwired warning system that we know what is right and what is wrong, what is righteous and what is unrighteous. Now, we can suppress that, which is what Paul tells us that we do before we come to know Christ. We suppress the truth by our unrighteousness. We suppress that conscience. Or... As believers, we can bring our conscience daily before the Word of God and let God's Word warm our conscience there that we might have a keen sensitivity to sin. We ought to know that we are more sinful the latter years of our walking with Christ than we do in the early years. Because God's Word turns up our understanding of God's holiness. And naturally, that helps us understand something of our sinfulness. 
God's given us a conscience that we might know what is truth and what is error. Paul tells us, just if you needed a text, that all men have a conscience. Romans chapter 2 says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the very things that the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their conscience bears witness against them. Well, because God has written his law on the hearts of all men without exception, all men are held responsible and accountable for their actions, and their sin will be punished. Friends, God isn't lenient with sin. He hates sin. It's a violation of his holiness and his righteousness. The prophet Habakkuk said this in Habakkuk 1.13, speaking about God, said, your eyes, God, your eyes are too pure to even look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Not one sin is forgotten, not one transgression is swept under the rug, and not one rebel moment goes unnoticed. God must punish sin. His justice must be inflexible. Every single member of the human race will one day stand before God and give an account for our lives. We'll give an account. And we'll either be found in Adam or in him. In Adam or in Christ. We'll either be found in Christ, clothed in his righteousness, or we'll be found in our sin. Jesus spoke about that judgment in John chapter 12. He said, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. You see, because God is impeccably holy. Let me just rewind that little statement there. God is impeccably holy. Holy without flaw. He must, as a result, glow with fiery indignation against sin. The sovereign judge must exercise unswerving justice or deny himself. If, if, God be, if God subverts justice in even the slightest, then his character becomes marred. God can't subvert justice. He is just, and therefore the scales of justice are never sliding scales. That being the, ca- the case, the question of paramount importance then is, how can God, a just judge, also be a merciful Savior? How can God, who is a just judge, also be a merciful Savior without the dishonor of subverting justice? Let me turn your attention to that word forgiveness in your text. Forgiveness in classical literature refers to the release of captives, to the cancellation or release from legal charge, financial obligation, or punishment. The word forgiveness here in verse 7 refers to a permanent cancellation of our sin debt and a permanent release from the punishment of our sin because, or on the grounds of, the fact that it has been paid by Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Literally, literally, forgiveness means to carry away. It means to release or to carry away. Back in the Old Testament again, we talked a little bit about the Old Testament sacrificial system there. Well, in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, two goats were selected. One goat was sacrificed, and the blood of that goat was sprinkled upon the mercy seat. The second goat, after the sins of the people had been confessed over it, was released into the wild. The the symbolism there is carrying away the sin of the people, never to return. Never to return. Again, they merely pointed to the reality who is Jesus Christ who came, died once for all to carry away our sin so that it might never again be seen. 
The psalmist reminds us this in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he, God, remove our transgression from us. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah says this in, uh, or Jeremiah rather, says this in Jeremiah 31, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Likewise, the prophet Micah said, he, God, will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Carry away. Here's some familiar language to us. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Finish the sentence. Just to forgive us of our unrighteousness. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, how desperately we need to be forgiven. Spurgeon once said this. He said, and this is, I'm speaking to me here. I'm I'm under the microscope here. He said, see how red your guilt is. Mark your scarlet strain. If you were to wash your soul in the Atlantic Ocean, you might color red every wave that crashes against its shores. And yet, the crimson spots of your transgression would still remain. But plunge into the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and in that instant you become whiter than snow. Every speck, every spot, every stain of sin is gone, and gone forever, carried away. Forgiven. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary. He suffered and died there alone. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will ever be. Standing around the throne for all eternity, we will praise the glorious grace of our good God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It will be our song forever. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Now, It's important that we note a critical distinction between human forgiveness and divine forgiveness. Human forgiveness, which is what you and I are called to exhibit towards one another. That's Ephesians 4.32. You are to forgive others just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's human forgiveness. That's what we're speaking about here. Human forgiveness is based on the fact that a penalty is deserved but not imposed. Penalty is deserved, but not imposed. In other words, when someone sins against you, you are to forgive instead of enacting punishment or enacting penalty. You absorb the offense, and you wipe the slate clean. That's human forgiveness. But divine forgiveness is altogether different. Because God is holy and righteous, divine forgiveness requires there to be an execution of a penalty and a price paid. God doesn't just forget and forgive. Those verses, as far as the east is from the west, down to the bottom of the ocean, carried away, those are 100% true. But we need to understand that God doesn't just simply forget and forgive. Divine forgiveness is wholly different or other than our forgiveness. In that, a penalty must be enacted. Otherwise, God is an unjust judge. In order for us to be forgiven, someone has to die in our place. In other words, forgiveness isn't the act of an indulgent deity who's moved by sentiment to the exclusion of justice, righteousness, and holiness. Forgiveness demands the payment of a penalty for sin. And so how can God both be a just judge and a merciful Savior without dishonoring or subverting justice? Jesus Christ stands in our place. He is our substitute. 
allows God to be both just and the justifier. There's no room for subversion of justice in God's courtroom. All sin is paid for. Write that down. All sin is paid for. All sin. Without exception. The moment that God becomes pliable in his execution of justice, his character becomes flawed. Furthermore, you don't want a God who's unjust. You don't want a God who is unjust. An unjust God may or may not settle your case correctly and my case correctly. An unjust judge, we we have no confidence that he will settle our case rightly or properly. God who is perfect in justice will never emancipate the unrepentant, but neither will he ever recondemn the righteous. Let me rewind that sentence for you. God the just judge will never emancipate or set free the unrepentant. Now, let me stop right there. As long as your heart is beating in your chest, Paul says today is the day of salvation. The offer to come to Christ is free, it's real, it's available. Repent of your sin. Do it right where you sit. Do it right now. Fly to Jesus. Cast yourself upon him. Bring yourself and all of your heap of sin to the foot of the cross and receive great forgiveness there. But for the one who dies in their sin, for the obstinate, hard-hearted, unrepentant sinner, there is no emancipation. Now the other side of that, though, is For those of us who, by God's grace, are found in Him, we never have to fear being recondemned. You get that? You don't want a God who's unjust. You love justice, by the way. Here's the illustration. Raise your hand if you've had a ticket in the last 24 months. My wife's the only one. Sorry. Listen. We've, we've all been there, or you've been in the car with someone who has. You're driving down King's Highway, and let's give us the benefit of, let's, let's give us the benefit of the doubt. Not that we probably deserve it, but let's give us the benefit of the doubt. We're trying to get to work, we're not looking at the speedometer, and we look up in our rearview mirror, and here's the red and blue lights. And you think, oh, goodness gracious, I've got three minutes to get to work, and it seems like it takes forever for the police officer to get from his car to your car, and when he gets there, and I'm thankful for our law enforcement officers. As a matter of fact, thank them every time you get the opportunity. But when he gets to the car, he asks for your license and registration, just like he should. And as he turns to take your documentation back to his car, you're sitting there in your car, and a brand new 2016 Canary Yellow Corvette Z06 comes flying past your window. What do you say now? Well, where's Cape Girardeau PD now? You know why you say that? Because you love justice. And loving justice is a part of what it means to be made in the image of God. God loves justice. And he's made his image bearers to love justice. You don't want a God who's unjust. But thanks be to God that at the cross, the law's demands were met and the price of love was paid. Jesus, our marvelous Savior, He didn't walk to the cross a begrudging Savior, but rather one whose heart was pierced by joy. The writer of Hebrews, this will be a familiar text to you, tells us this, look to Jesus or set your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Not begrudgingly, for the joy set before him. What joy? Pleasing the Father, obedience to the Father, and setting captives free. 
for the joy set before him. I've never been able to validate the story I'm going to tell you here, so it may or may not be true. But it helps make a point. Jesus, the offended, died to set his offenders free. But still, yet, there are those who take God's offer of redemption, take God's offer of forgiveness for granted. Here's the story. In 1982, the ABC Evening News reported on an unusual work of modern art. It was a chair affixed to a shotgun. It was to be viewed by sitting in the chair and looking directly into the gun's barrel. The gun was loaded, and it was set on a timer to fire at an undetermined moment within the next hundred years. The amazing thing is that people lined up to sit and stare into the the shell's path. They knew the gun could go off at point-blank range at any moment, but yet they were gambling that that fatal blast wouldn't happen during their minute in the chair. Yes, it was foolhardy, yet many people who wouldn't dream of sitting in that chair live a lifetime gambling that they will get away with their sin. Gambling. And can I tell you what? It's, It's not even a gamble. It's already settled. We won't. We won't. Not one rebel moment goes unnoticed. But the offer of forgiveness is free and available. Fly to Jesus. Come to him. He's a great redeemer. The second result of our redemption is abundant grace. Let me draw your attention to verse 7c. That little phrase, according to the riches of his grace. It's a beautiful picture here in these seven words. Matter of fact, these seven words... Uh, compose the vastness and the comprehensiveness of our forgiveness. Look at that word riches there for just a minute. has the idea of wealth or of fullness or of opulence. We could literally translate this phrase here in verse 7c, according to the fullness of his grace. God's grace is vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. It rolls like a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Annie Flint once penned these words in her him he giveth more grace. She said his love, speaking about Jesus, has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his, Jesus's, infinite riches, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Out of his infinite riches, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Let me draw your attention to the two words according to. Paul says, according to the riches of his grace. Simple little words. As a matter of fact, as we're reading our Bibles, we might be tempted to skip over a couple of words like that. But there is massive significance in those two little words, according to. Paul is using very intentional language, and I want you to see it here. If a wealthy person gave to someone in need, there are two distinct ways in which he could do it. He could either give according to his riches or he could give from his riches. According to his riches or from his riches. Track with me here for just a second, okay? What's the difference, you ask? If a wealthy man gives pocket change to a homeless person in need, he's merely giving from his riches. A very wealthy person, could be a guy, could be a gal, walks past someone in need and simply pulls out pocket change and gives it. They're giving from their riches, okay? They're giving from their riches. Merely 
giving an insignificant amount in light of the value of our wealth. If, on the other hand, a wealthy person gave to a homeless person a check for $100,000, now he's given according to his riches or in measure with his riches. You see the difference? Paul's using some very intentional language here. Our great God has redeemed us at an infinite cost. He's not merely redeeming us from his riches. Here's a little bit of grace. Here's, here's a little bit of redemption. Here's a little bit of salvation. He's giving us according to his great riches. Here's the beauty of that picture. God hasn't redeemed us at the expense of something insignificant. He's redeemed us at the expense of his own son's blood. He's purchased us with his blood. He's forgiven our sin debt in full. In other words, he's given us out of his overflowing, abundant grace. What he gives to us is out of his overflowing, abundant grace. Some have falsely assumed that if we make too much of grace, then people will misuse it as a license to sin, but nothing could be farther from the truth. Now, here's the reality. We can never outspend God's grace. In Christ, we can never outsin God's grace. Now, that's in no way, shape, or form a license to sin. As a matter of fact, grace teaches us to do something very opposite. Titus chapter 2. Paul says, For it is the grace of God that has appeared. And that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age as we wait for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who redeemed us as a possession for his own, that we might be zealous for good works. You see, grace doesn't encourage us to sin. Grace encourages us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. There's a story from back in the Civil War days where a man went to a slave auction, and I want to be sensitive here. I'm not encouraging anything. Um, I'm not making light of anything, but I think the story helps make a point here. But a man went to a slave auction, and he purchased a young slave girl, and as they walked away from the auction, the man turned to the young girl, and he said, you're free. And with amazement, she turned to him, and she said, "You, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, he said. You mean I'm free to say whatever I want to say? Yes, anything. And to be whatever I want to be? Yes. And to go wherever I want to go? Yes, he answered with a smile. You're free to go wherever you'd like. This young girl turned and looked at him intently and replied, Then I will go with you. Then I will go with you. Now transpose that picture over to Christ. He's re- he owns us doubly. He made us and he bought us. He's creator and redeemer. He's freed us from the shackles and chains of our sin. He's purchased us off the slave block of sin and death, slavery to sin and death, the tyranny of sin. Does that make us want to go sin more? No, it makes us want to take up our cross daily and turn to our wonderful Savior and say, then I'll follow you. I'll go with you. That's grace. That's grace. And it's been given to us in Christ abundantly. Well, the third result of our redemption is a spiritual mind. As we land the plane this morning, I want to turn your attention 
to verse 8. Paul says, which he, God, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Think about that word lavished for just a moment. The word translated lavished in the Greek means to be excessive. It means to be more than enough. It means to be over and above or exceeding in measure. Let me give you a sticky thought to help cement that idea of God's lavish grace in your heart and mind. Niagara Falls, the collective name of the three waterfalls that sit on the Canadian-American border. If you've ever had the privilege to go and stand before its immensity, to stand before its inspiring face, the sheer sight and sound are almost overwhelming. have never had the privilege to do that. Watch some videos, and it's still awe-inspiring. But if you ever had the ability to stand there in front of its face, the sheer sight and the sheer sound are almost overwhelming. Every single minute, 4 million cubic feet of water, the highest flow rate of any waterfall in the rest of the world, plunge over the falls and into the Niagara River Basin in a thunderous applause to God's creative power. Now, God the one in whose mind the falls originated could have used a little less water. He could have made the falls a little shorter, but in his wisdom, he made them 17 stories high. And because of what they are, from the creative hand of God, people travel from all over the world to behold their magnificence. Now, what a picture of God's grace. Think about lavish again. What a picture of God's grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, God's grace towards us, it isn't squeezed through an eyedropper. It's not rationed like water in a time of drought. He lavishes his grace on us. His grace thunders forth in exceeding measure towards us such that we stand and marvel at its immensity and grandeur and we just receive it. We just receive it. He poured out his grace unsparingly on us and as a result of Christ's life, his death, and his victorious resurrection for you, you who are in Christ can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Exceedingly abundant, superfluous grace. But there's a particular grace that Paul has in view here in verse 8. Look back at the text for just a minute. Speaking about God's grace, he says, He, God, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That's the phrase we're looking at here. We need to ask a couple of questions as we try to sort out this phrase. Number one, who's the subject of wisdom and insight? And number two, what do wisdom and insight mean? Who's the subject? Whose wisdom and insight is it? And then what does that mean? Now, if God is the subject, in verse 8, of wisdom and understanding, or wisdom and insight, if God is the subject, then what Paul is saying is this. God lavished His grace on us of all His wisdom and insight. But, if we the redeemed, if we the forgiven are the subject of verse 8 there, then what Paul is saying is this, God has lavished upon us his grace of all wisdom and insight. Let me submit to you that I think the proper interpretation is the latter. I think what Paul's communicating here is that God has lavished on us his particular grace of wisdom and insight. He's given us wisdom and insight. I think the subject of wisdom and insight in verse 8 are the redeemed and the forgiven. I say that for two reasons. First, immediately following in verse 9, let your eyes peruse there in your Bible. Paul begins to talk about the mystery of God's will. 
Notice that verse 8 flows right into verse 9 without any punctuation. So, let me, if you can do this just with your mind's eye for a moment, pull out the little 9 in your Bible. Okay, as helpful as those verse references are, they're not inspired. We put those there. God's word is inspired. It's infallible. It's inerrant from beginning to end. Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, those little markings in there, verse indicators, are helpful, but they're not inspired. So if you can kind of pull verse 9 out for just a second and read it through. See, this is a case where these verse divisions, they're a little bit tricky. But it seems most fitting that wisdom and insight that are spoken of here in verse 8 refer to a particular grace given to us as believers by God so that we can understand the mystery of His will. Look at verse 8, which He lavished upon us, comma, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. See, wisdom and insight is for the making known to us the mystery of His will. Paul uses some similar language in the parallel book almost of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Well, what are you praying for the church, Paul? Well, this is what he's praying. He's asking that they may be filled with all the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing uh, fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. I think what Paul's saying here is that along with redemption, along with forgiveness, along with his grace, God has also given us the particular grace of wisdom and insight. What do wisdom and insight mean in this context then? I think wisdom emphasizes an understanding of ultimate things. Wisdom is ultimate things. Things such as life and death, God and man, righteousness and sin, heaven and hell, eternity and time. Wisdom refers to an understanding of the things of God. Insight, on the other hand, emphasizes an understanding of practical things. Wisdom, ultimate things, insight, practical things. This is spiritual prudence, insight here. Spiritual prudence or discretion. Every single one of us wakes up every morning and we, we set out into a Genesis 3 fallen world. How do we handle daily life in a way that pleases and honors God? Well, God gives us the grace of insight so that we might know how to live according to his plan. Paul wants us to know here that God not only forgives us, absolving us of all of our sin, all of the sin that destroys our lives, but he also gives us all the necessary hardware, i.e. wisdom and insight, so that we can understand him and walk in a way that reflects his will and his word. Thanks be to God that he has not just saved us and then left us in a vacuum to try to figure things out on our own. He's given us wisdom and insight. That when we open his word, we might have an understanding by the the aid of the Holy Spirit what's being said here and then have the ability to even live it out. That's wisdom and understanding. That we might understand the mystery of his will. Friends, our God is good. You know him? Is he sitting on the throne of your life? Are you following him in humble submission? If not, again, we encourage you to repent right where you sit. Come to Jesus Christ. Trust him and him alone to save you from the penalty of your sin. He is a great redeemer. There is no other blood with sufficient detergent to wipe you clean, to wash you whiter than snow. Trust him. When we realize what Christ has done for us, We realized what he has done for us. The only proper response 
is that of that young lady, then I will follow 